Hello, and welcome to The Sound of Space, a podcast brought to you by the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. Hi, um, Ewan. Thank you for joining me and uh, our listeners on uh, The Sound of Space today. So, uh, Ewan is a physicist by education, and he is also my current boss at GHGSAT. So, happy to have you on with us today. So I guess I'll just let you introduce himself a bit. And uh, so Yuan, you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks for the introduction, Ketan. Pleasure uh, to be here. Pleasure to speak on this podcast. So yeah, uh, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from Canada. Um, I grew up in the UK in a little seaside town called Weymouth um, in South England. So What's Weymouth like? Well, I guess if you like the outdoors, it's uh, it's a super nice place to grow up. There's lots of amazing countryside for hiking, uh, cycling. Of course, there's the sea. Um, you might have heard of Weymouth. Uh, I don't know if we've ever spoken about Weymouth, but it hosted the 2012 Olympics for sailing. Oh, I was um, not aware of that. <laughs> yeah, so some people have heard of Weymouth through that. It's got a, an Olympic sailing academy, which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I did my like education, um, mostly around that area. I was always interested in physics and maths at school. So I went to Southampton university, uh, in the UK to do a master's in particle physics. Um, you might also have heard of Southampton. They have a, a premier league football team. Yeah. That one I've definitely heard of though. <laughs> right. <laughs> Weymouth also has a football club. <laughs> Actually, I think I think I've heard of Weymouth Football Club as well, but they're a lower division team, I think. Yeah, they're the last time I checked, they were like twentieth in the conference league. So yeah, <laughs> not quite Southampton at all. But uh, what Southampton does do very well is uh, physics, and I was super lucky because just as I joined Southampton, we're uh, creating a really strong relationship with CERN. Um, the European Organization for Nuclear Research. Uh, and through that connection, I was really lucky to spend my last year at CERN doing a master's research project in particle physics. Um, so that was, I guess, the real transitional year for me, which, you know, kind of cemented the fact that I'm really interested in this and I'm really passionate about physics as, as a topic. Um, after that master's, I did a PhD in cosmology. Um, more specifically in particle cosmology at Nottingham University. Um, and then I stayed in academia for a few years as a postdoc uh, doing research in, in cosmology. Um, oh, lots of school. Lots of school. Um, the, the postdoc and the uh, PhD, they're very much, you know, led by you. So I chose the research topic. Um, in some ways, I guess you could say you're, you're your own boss. So school kind of ended uh, at CERN and then it became more of a, a job, if you like. Yeah. So, so how, do, how did you go from, I guess, uh, the kind of pure physics space, you know, uh, with all particle physics and CERN and whatnot, and how do you end up at somewhere like GHGSAT? And just for context for listeners, um, GHGSAT is a, a satellite imaging company which me measures methane emissions around the globe. Yeah, so good, good question. Um, 
in between doing physics and arriving at GHG set, uh, I also did a stint, I did about three years um, in a research and technology organization called TWI, at the, uh, which is an international company, but it's headquartered in the UK. Uh, and there I was part of the numerical modeling and optimization team. So TWI is, is a big company that specializes in materials joining and engineering processes. And the numerical modeling team performs uh, numerical simulations. So things like finite element analysis and CFD, uh, fluid dynamic simulations to simulate, for example, the response of a structure to, I don't know, vibrational load or to understand the impact that a crack might have in a welded steel joint. Um, so this was my first kind of exposure to industry work. Um, you might have heard of friction stir welding, especially like li your listeners in who are familiar with like space grade materials. So friction stir welding is a, a welding technique that was patented and invented at TWI. It's used to, for example, manufacture the external panels on the NASA space shuttle. Um, like this welding technique has properties that are kind of superior to traditional welding techniques. That's cool. Actually, I actually personally didn't even hear about it before. So it's cool to, to know about that. And um, I guess uh, it, it's cool to see also an intersection. Uh, like uh, a lot of the people listening to this or on our teams are like engineers. And, uh, you know, it's cool to see the intersection between like a pure physicist and like uh, engineering when it comes to like CFD and like finite, finite element analysis. I and mean, those are things that like, both domains kind of use pretty intensely as well. Right. So the, the, the common thread, I guess, between, you know, doing particle physics, doing cosmology, doing engineering simulations is always uh, basically solving big equations on a computer. Um, in terms of finite element analysis, the, the equations are written down as like huge, huge, huge matrices. Uh, and you have to solve these matrix equations. And uh, you can do that very efficiently using the finite element method. Uh, when I was doing cosmology, for example, we were doing things like n-body simulations, which, uh, you know, you have a bunch of particles and they all interact with each other through different forces, the exchange of different forces. Uh, and again, you have a whole bunch of equations that you have to solve. Um, and similarly, at GHGSAT, which is where I am now, um, we have a bunch of equations to solve. It's the equations of the atmosphere, how light propagates through the atmosphere, how it gets absorbed by certain species in the atmosphere, such as methane, um, and how it interacts with our satellite. So that's the kind of common thread. It's, yeah. Summarize, lots, lots of equations, lots of math. <laughs> <laughs> lots of equations, lots of math, correct. So you were telling us about going from uh, TWI to now where you're at in GHGSAT. Yeah, so uh, I guess the real reason why I ended up in Canada was I fell in love with a, a wonderful Canadian woman. Who's <laughs> uh, we met in the UK like 10 years ago um, and we had to make the decision, do we live in the UK, do we live in, uh, in Canada? So we moved to Montreal about three and a half years ago. Um, 
and I was very lucky to find this position at the time. GHG Sat was a very young company. I was the something like 20th employee. And in the last three years, we're, we've, uh, we're now well over 100, 110 and growing. So yeah, the company's doing very well. Um, it's a lot of interest from a lot of different areas, uh, industry, government, regulators. Uh, so it's a really exciting time to be part of this part of this company. I think uh, one of the cool experiences that you kind of had the opportunity to undertake was you know, working with CERN. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot about CERN, but, you know, on this side of the pond, I guess we don't get to really work with them. So uh, you, could you tell us a bit about your time with CERN, you know, maybe some of the cool things you had to opportunity to work on or to see or to experience over there? Sure. So, yeah, CERN is an incredible place. If you ever get a chance to go, you can go as a tourist and they take you around the facility <laughs> and kind of, um, yeah, show you cool things. Even just seeing one of the magnets which steer proton beams around the collider tunnel, that just one of them is uh, impressive. So yeah, CERN stands for the European Organization for Nuclear Research. Uh, it's a European organization which operates what currently is the, the world's largest particle physics lab. Um, it's located on the French-Swiss border, so not far from Geneva. Um, and CERN, as the organization, it's the site of this large hadron collider, the LHC. Um, so were you working on site at the hadron collider or? Yes. So um, yeah, I was in an office. There's a, a little town called uh, Mérin, which is like on the French-Swiss border. Um, I actually lived in Switzerland, but worked in France. So every day I had to yeah. cross the border on a very European. Very European. Um, so yeah, CERN, it has this large Hadron Collider, um, which basically is a 27 kilometer in circumference tunnel, which is about 100 meters below ground. Uh, and the LHC accelerates, is, accelerates bunches of protons up to almost the speed of light. One bunch you know, goes clockwise, the other goes anti-clockwise. And they're steered around this tunnel by these huge magnets. And there are four crossing points where the particles can be made to collide. And at these points, you know, you place detectors um, to analyze the new particles that are produced in the collision of the, of the proton beams. So my master's project was uh, part of the LHCB experiment. So the four, there's kind of three main experiments which people often hear about. There's LHCB, there's ATLAS, and there's CMS. Um, LHCB was the experiment that I was part of. B stands for beauty. Um, so beauty is, oh, yeah. um, is, is a quark. So yeah. people might have heard of the, you know, the B quark. And LHCB was designed specifically to understand um, the B quark and more top level to try and understand the differences between man, uh, matter and antimatter by um, by studying uh, the B quark and how it decays. To break it down also a little bit for listeners that might not even know what quarks are, right? Quarks are just uh, subatomic particles which basically uh, make up 
different parts of the atom, uh, you and you can probably be much more specific, but um, just wanted to give some context there. Right, exactly. So, you know, a quark is kind of, is a fundamental building block uh, of, it makes up a, a hadron, essentially. It's quarks combine to form composite particles. So you could take two up quarks and a down quark and you'd get a proton. I guess that's really what you guys are studying at um, CERN, right? Like those fundamental blocks. Yeah, the fundamental, very much the fundamental blocks. And, and also, you know, the, one of the primary motivations for building this $4 billion experiment was to search for signatures of the Higgs boson, which everybody has heard of. It's, you know, everybody. It was a huge the, thing a few years yeah, ago, too. A huge thing. So, and, you know, the Higgs, we can only see it at very, very high energies. It's only. Um, yeah, we only have access to it by doing things like colliding high energy beams of particles together and converting them into uh, at energies where the Higgs is, is accessible. Right. Um, Basically, the goal of this whole collider is to like accelerate particles such that they have such an energy that when they collide, um, you have access to those higher energy particles, basically make things go boom and see what comes out of them. Um, much, yeah, um, exactly. So we're, you know, for LHCB, they were trying to measure tiny, tiny differences in, um, as I said, as I mentioned, like the properties of matter and antimatter. Um, and through specific decays of, of, of the B quark. Um, and similar, the other, the other experiments were designed to measure the properties of the Higgs. I wasn't uh, part of those experiments, but it's a similar. I guess you would have been around almost when the big uh, discoveries were being made right then. I think it was around 2016 or something like that. No, so unfortunately, so the question that you posed to me was t tell us a bit about your experience at CERN. It was great to be there, but um, unfortunately, it was a big disappointment. So I arrived at CERN <laughs> on the tenth of December. Um, when I was looking, when I was preparing for this interview, I went and looked at my passport and I have a stamp, tenth uh, of December two thousand and eight, which is when I got to CERN. Okay. Uh, so nine days later, on the ninth. On the 19th of September 2008, they switched the LHC on for the first time. And okay. there was a massive magnet quench, which occurred in about 100 of these bending magnets, which was due to an electrical fault. And that quench released about six tons of liquid helium, which is the coolant used to cool the magnets. Uh, and that vented into the tunnel and basically caused a huge explosion. And that shot oh, the wow. Yeah, that shut the LHC down for one year. Oh no, that was my master's. <laughs> um, oh wow, so, so you didn't, you, so you weren't even able to be there for any collisions. Not, no, not real data. So, you know, it was you could sense the morale. Like the day, the ten days that I was there, everyone was, you know, super, super excited. Uh, there was a lot of apprehension, <laughs> and then it blew up. Anticipation, yeah, and then there was. 
this big disappointment. In hindsight, uh, it was really useful because a lot of the experiments were still trying to understand their detector. Um, you know, you build the detector to understand what you want to measure, but you the first thing you have to do is understand the systematics of your experiment. Um, right. It was a great period, but uh, very unfortunate not to have real data. Yeah, I mean, at least uh, I guess uh, very few people can at least say that they uh, were there, and even less people can say that they were there when it opened. So, um, <laughs> so I guess that's one thing there. You also mentioned you did some work in cosmology, and I guess that's heavily related to space and whatnot. And we are a space podcast at the end of the day, so I guess um, we kind of like to ask you about uh, what would have gotten you interested in, you know, space and cosmology and I guess the history of everything, right? Sure, yeah. So that actually stemmed from when I was at CERN. Um, like I got pretty uh, bored is the wrong word. Um, <laughs> you got like, bored at the Large Hadron Collider? Yeah, no, not bored. Bored <laughs> is the wrong word. Um, like look, st staring, trying to align mirrors for like eight months of your year uh, is can get a little bit tedious. So the office down the corridor from the office I was working in was had theoretical physicists in it. And one day, like I just started talking to them over coffee. Um, and these guys were theoretical cosmologists. And I remember one of them saying in this conversation, did you know that the universe is actually expanding? that the expansion is accelerated, <laughs> um, which is like a massive sentence to kind of process. Um, and so I remember thinking and like asking him, like, how do you even measure this? Um, you know, we're sitting in this coffee room at CERN, uh, which has cost us like this 4 billion US dollars to measure tiny particles like the Higgs. How the hell do we measure the fact that the universe is, is expanding or accelerating? Um, and so this guy then started telling me about, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope um, and the fact that, you know, it's named after this guy called Edwin Hubble, who observed like in the 1920s, the relationship between the distance and the distance that a galaxy is away from us and how fast it's receding, like the Hubble law. Um, and that kind of, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope was named after him um, and, it, and that kind of observation changed our understanding of the way that the universe works um, and it created all of these experiments all of these uh, satellites that we now know about like the Hubble Space Telescope, WMAP, Planck, LIGO, the James Webb Space Telescope which is being built um, and so I guess that's what got me interested in you know quote unquote space you know cosmology for a kind of a long time was this um it went from like being something that was theorized about and that philosophers would engage with um prior to the 90s and then around about the 90s um there were these like it transformed in, into basically a predictive science you, you can make incredibly precise detailed observations about the constituents of the universe how much normal matter there are how much dark matter there is how much dark energy there is um, with these experiments like Planck and 
So we've been throwing around this like, you know, domain cosmology and, and whatnot. But honestly, I think uh, most people, it's a pretty like esoteric domain. It's a pretty niche domain. So I, you know, could, could you explain to us a bit about, you know, what cosmology actually is? Yeah, sure. So uh, I would say cosmology is essentially the study of the universe and its components. Um, so what what is its origin? How did it start? How did it form? Um, how did it evolve? How did the structure in it form? How did galaxies and stars form? Um, what is its dynamics? And ultimately, what is the future of the universe? What is the fate? So a study of the timeline of the universe, basically. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, things like the Big Bang Theory came out of this kind of study. Exactly. Um, so, you know, that's very broad, like modern scientific cosmology uh, is kind of considered to have begun with like Einstein's publication in, of general relativity. Um, that was the real, the first real work which prompted other people like there's you know a whole slew of very famous people like De Sitter, Schwarzschild, Eddington to explore like its astronomical properties um, and, and that effort in in turn like enhanced a whole bunch of astronomers to study distant objects like galaxies and quasars and black holes and people began questioning the assumption that the universe was just this boring static block <laughs> um, and you know maybe it's expanding maybe it's collapsing um, it's funny that you should mention all these like uh you know uh, i guess space events i guess things like or uh, objects you know like quasars and whatnot um for me personally uh what got me interested in space was when i was uh, a young uh child I would go to the libraries you know they have those huge books on space and like stars and you know different you know things that are that exist in space and to me it was looking at you know all of these theories about what could be what could not be and you know visualizations of what they would look like that just got me so interested in like we what really interested me is the fact that we know a lot but we don't know anything right um, and I guess that's kind of the you know I guess I, in a way, I would have been interested in the cosmology side and the timeline of like, you know, what really started things, how will it all end, and you know, um, what actually is the the truth, I guess, behind the universe. So it's it's funny you would mention all those things as well. Out of this whole like, uh, you know, all these theories and you know dimensions and. Um, you know, all of these kind of like physics-y things, what would you say uh, is kind of the coolest thing that you either learned or discovered uh, working as a researcher um, in your space? Sure, uh, so it was certainly nothing that I ever discovered. I didn't discover it. <laughs> <laughs> or but just like learn something, you know, from others, like coffee room chat, like you were talking about. Uh, well, I would say like, I was lucky enough to be, um, in a, in a really exciting period of cosmology. So I would say that 
the most exciting thing was the direct observation of gravitational waves. So right. yeah. like the experiment in 2015, yeah. um, directly measured like this gravitational wave signature by the merger of two black holes. Um, there'd been a lot of like indirect evidence for gravitational waves over the years. Like, I think they were like, they were proposed as early as like 1910 or something. And Einstein predicted them based on GR. And then there were lots of indirect observations, which came like really close to saying, oh, I think this is a, I think this is a gravitational wave, but nothing that was conclusive. Um, and I remember watching like the LIGO press conference at Sussex when I was a postdoc and thinking, this is, this is so cool. You know, Einstein's GR basically says that, uh, you know, the observed gravitational effect between masses results from the warping of space-time and gravitational waves are essentially disturbances in the curvature of space-time um, and that's what LIGO measured so you know LIGO has basically measured disturbances in the curvature of space-time and that's pretty mind-boggling yeah I remember when that happened around 2015 that it was actually all over the news as well um, you know like the first you know gravitational wave you know at the time kind of no idea what that really means, you know, as a 15 year old for me, but, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I knew it was a big deal. Um, so I guess kind of switching gears a bit towards, um, you know, being successful in your field. Um, I was wondering if you had any, you know, skills or, uh, uh, aptitudes, I guess you would say, are important for people to develop to be successful, either in physics or, you know, in the kind of your career path you've undertaken, you know, I guess, major lessons you've learned in that sense. Yeah, sure. Um, what can I say? I guess in, in no particular order, if I was going to mention three things, uh, one of them would be being a good communicator. So being able to communicate technical information uh, is really important. Uh, in both academia and industry, you know, we communicate important information through written texts, papers, or reports and presentations. And generally speaking, my experience has been that if you can explain yourself well, people are much more willing to engage with you on projects if they understand your message, if they understand what you're saying. Um, another skill, it's maybe not a skill, it's more, maybe more of a, an aptitude, but basically question everything, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> like, why am I using this equation? Do I really understand this equation? If I don't understand it, am I still happy to use it? Um, as a concrete example, like if you're working with finite element analysis and the equation, I don't know, is predicting the ultimate tensile strength of a material. And this material is going to be used in a safety critical application. Should I use this equation if I don't understand it? Like, what's the risk? Um, and of course, like, I guess the last thing is a skill would be, if you're a physicist, you need good, um, good math and numerical skills. So, right, how did you, because, I mean, a lot of the work that we do, especially together, is very software-based. So at what point did 
that really you know become important for you? Because I know a lot of physicists and a lot of physics students who you know maybe they'll learn like a little bit of Python or um, they'll learn their MATLAB or do their simulations, but not to the degree that um, you know at which we're working with that. So um, really, at what point did that become important for you? Uh, so I got my first exposure of like professional software development at CERN. So CERN has, at that time, there was no real data. This, the LHC was broken. And so we had to work with simulated data. Um, the simulations that they're doing are incredibly complicated. They have to simulate, uh, you know, they're physics-based simulations, which simulate the interaction of particles with different materials and how they collide with one another. Um, so that's where I had my first exposure. I then, I guess, kind of just enjoyed using good software. I, I appreciated the power of a well-written piece of code. Uh, if you write a piece of code to get the job done very quickly, and it's kind of quick and dirty, it's harder to reuse it later. And so I tried to get myself into this habit of just taking the time at the beginning to write, put a bit more effort into thinking, how can I make this code reusable so that in my next project, which is totally unrelated to CERN, I can still use what I've written. It's still useful. Yeah, definitely. I'd be interested to hear, you know, what are the aspects or uh, things that excite you about uh, future space flight and space exploration, if you have any uh, things that have piqued your interest? Sure. Um, so I guess working with GHGSAT, um, there's a lot of, that's exposed me to a lot of interest with kind of nanosatellites and microsatellites. Um, we're kind of at this transitional stage, I guess, of the space industry and especially the satellite launch industry where systems can be launched at much lower cost, uh, much smaller. Um, I'm going to be a bit naughty and I'm not going to answer your question about why it excites me. Um, I'm going <laughs> to answer why uh, the future worries me. Um, okay. Because there's this fundamental space activity change in the last decade. You know, we're not launching massive, complex, large spacecraft like NASA does. The trend is towards small companies such as GHGSAT launching things the size of a briefcase or for some satellite constellation communication systems, they're the size of a mobile phone. Right, yeah. And so we need to kind of consider how is this sustainable? Like when we consider this shift towards increasing numbers of small satellites, what impact are these objects going to have on the long-term evolution of space debris, for example, the environment? Right. Um, and also these, you know, a general concern is that these small satellites are going to pose a big threat to kind of classical missions. Um, you know, GHGSAT's satellite is not equipped with a propulsion system. We can't perform any collision avoidance or yeah. end of life disposal type maneuvers. So whilst everyone's basically getting excited about the future of space flight and space flight exploration, we need to put like real effort into 
being aware of the damage that we're causing, uh, which may be very difficult to rectify. So uh, this is actually something we think about a lot on our team as well, because we uh, launch CubeSats. Um, and so we're aware of like, uh, also like the policies in place for that kind of stuff. And it hasn't really become uh, law yet, but I do know that there is a deorbiting uh, basically mandate now that, um, you know, within, I think, I don't remember the exact time frame, something between 30 to 50 years, uh, uh, a satellite or a CubeSat or anything has to deorbit itself uh, in burn up into the atmosphere. So I think, you know, that might, might address some of the concerns, but I remember uh, studying a bit of, you know, the Kessler syndrome, which is the idea that, as you said, if, at the current rate at which we're sending things into space, um, eventually you would not no longer be able to actually launch anything from the earth because there'd be basically this web of, uh, you know, dead satellites and debris, right? right. So, but I think, uh, in recent years, it's been addressed a lot. Um, even uh, in the robotics field, the most active field I've seen in space robotics is, you know, active debris removal, um, which is the idea that we can actually send up. It's kind of counterintuitive to send up things to take things down, right? So, or push them out into space. You know, there's different solutions. So, I think it, th those concerns are definitely being thought about at least a bit more now. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, uh, but yeah, we, we need to be as a community, I guess, more aware of it. I think realistically, there needs to be tighter industry regulation uh, companies. Yeah. It's hard to regulate space. It's yeah. hard to regulate space. Like it's, uh, you come down to all the policy of it, then it's laying, you know, how you impose law in a place where, you know, no body or entity can really claim. Um, so I guess, you know, veering off and wrapping up a bit with a bit of a fun question, uh, would you go to space if you had the opportunity? <laughs> Absolutely. Of course. <laughs> Cause I know, um, you know, I personally would, but you know, a lot of people get kind of freaked out by the idea of space and kind of desolate and whatnot, but I think, um, it definitely would be an awesome opportunity. Yeah. It'd be be awesome. It'd be a very humbling experience, I think, to look down on where we live, our little planet. Well, on that note, uh, hopefully future space explorers over here, we're going to sign out. And thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us. And thank you to Ewan for coming on our podcast. No problem. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can follow us on Instagram at underscore the sound of space to continue the conversation and let us know your thoughts on all things aerospace. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the sound of space.